are listening to the American Truth Project Podcast. Welcome to Because You Asked. I'm Barry Nussbaum. We are back from our tour of Israel, and today's special guest is Danny Seaman. 30 years serving the government of Israel, including six prime ministers. He's known around the world as the voice of the prime minister of Israel, including a decade serving Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. In segment one, we are going to hear about his background, how he became what he was, known to the world as the voice of Israel. Danny, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. So tell us just a little bit of bio. Uh, you've got a fascinating history of government work for, as you said, a number of prime ministers. I'd like to hear about it. I started working for Israeli government uh, about 34 years ago. I worked at the Israeli consulate in New York. So you started it when you were eight? <laughs> yeah, something like that. No, I was uh, just out of the army. I was 23 years old. I began working for the Israeli government at that time uh, on campuses in the United States. It was difficult even then. It's gotten worse over the years. Um, and came back to Israel, started working with the government press office. It's the branch of the prime minister's office uh, that works with the foreign press. I started out working with uh, uh, Itzhak Shamir at uh -huh. this time. Worked uh, with uh, Itzhak Rabin after that. I left at that, uh, at that period. Uh, I felt uncomfortable. I didn't support what was going on in this process. Maybe we'll talk about this later. Um, worked with the IDF Spokesman's Unit. Uh, it's the uh, branch of the IDF that works with the foreign press. Uh, and then I came back under Netanyahu. I worked with him in his first term. I worked with Barack and then uh, Ariel Sharon. And I was appointed under Barack as the director of the government press office and uh, retired about three years ago. So. Uh, uh Incredible. In the United States, you get to work with one president. In, in Israel, at least in your biography, you've worked with the most recent is history of 25 years. It's, it's fascinating. Well, this, we, we, we were built on the British model that you have a professional civil servants. So I was a professional civil servant. Like I said, when I felt uncomfortable, being an American, not a lot of Israelis do that, but being an American, when I felt uncomfortable with what I saw was happening or not happening with the peace process, I didn't feel that I could support or defend that. So I left the position. Got it. I worked with the, with the IDF spokesman's unit. I re-enlisted and was an officer with the IDF and uh, worked there with the foreign press. It was easier because I didn't have to defend policy. Just had to deal with the uh, things happening with the IDF. So uh, came back when uh, I felt more comfortable with the government and worked uh, through several prime ministers after that. So, who's your favorite? Who's my favorite? <laughs> Menachem Begin. <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't get to work with him personally, but it was a standard of a prime minister that. Uh, because I of his warrior mentality, uh, his leadership, his personality? Uh, maybe it's because I was uh, younger. I was drawn to him because of his charisma, because of the things, his very staunch, strong Zionist identity. Uh, he was a man of the people. And so being a young man, uh, I was drawn to him and to the Likud at that time. Um, but I found that it was very interesting with every prime minister. There was something interesting about them. Um, I knew Netanyahu from the time I worked at the consulate in New York, so I knew him personally for many years. Um, Sharon was very surprising. I had known him as a military figure, I admired him. One of the reasons I was a paratrooper, I joined because of Ariel Sharon and his really? record. <laughs> and I told him this when he was prime minister. We, one of our roles was to uh, take the picture, the official uh, photo of the prime minister. 
So obviously I had to be at that. Uh, and I shook his hand afterwards and I spoke to him and he was, uh, was so pleasant and such a different than his uh, public persona. Uh, so he's not a bulldozer in private? Not at all, not at all. Sharon was perhaps the most surprising. He is um, very kind and very, very generous person. Uh, I also worked for Homer, who I know his brother. I worked very closely with his brother before, so I knew him for many years. So working in government for a lot of you get to know these people personally on uh, on many different levels. Um, but I, to say a, a particular um, person that uh, no, I, I, there were good things and bad things about all of them. So what? So what's BB like to work for? Um, BB, he's. How do I put this in a way that doesn't, I don't mean to in any way speak ill of him. He's very single-minded in, in working for his role, whereas Olmert or Sharon would be, um, you know, they had their people working for them, they were very strong with the people surrounding them. Some people think that Bibi doesn't care because he's very focused on the role. Uh, some people may, say, may call it Machiavellian. Uh, some, I think that there's something good about it because he doesn't deal with nonsense. He deals, he's very focused on what he has to get done as prime minister, also for preserving himself. Um, but he is extremely bright, extremely bright. I think we've been blessed in Israel with having, uh, putting all criticisms aside, political criticisms, um, Barack, Olmert, uh, Netanyahu, Sharon, very, very bright individuals. I think that we've been very blessed in Israel with having leadership that understand the role, Sometimes it was funny, I would see the, when prime ministers are replaced or the person elected comes into office. And we're all there in the office receiving the new prime ministers and they go in for about an hour or two, they sit with the former prime minister and you see their face before they go in, they're full of confidence and they come in, to, they've just been elected, they have all, and then you see them when they leave. Uh, they're, they're coming have out. they've heard all the problems? Oh my <laughs> God, you see their face and I said, oh, what did he hear that we don't know about yet? Right. And they say that the most difficult job in the world is being prime minister of the state of Israel because you basically have uh, you know, any decision of yours can cost, uh, and we are well, perhaps the only country in the world that its destiny is questioned. And uh, there are those forces out there who want to destroy us. So politics is nice, and running for politics and being elected, I think they understand, but there comes that point. And, and it may have been somebody who served as Minister of Defense. The moment you're sitting there and you are the one who makes the decisions, I think the full weight of the responsibility of 3,000, 4,000 years of history is lying on their shoulders. The moment they understand that, they say, it's a whole different moment. Right. Um, I also say you know, that who knows what phone call they got from the United States at that moment. Uh, we have this stuff on you. You better start doing what we're saying. I'm saying that facetiously, but um, I think every one of the prime ministers uh, have this understanding of the responsibility that they have as the leaders of the Jewish people, and it's it's comforting to know that. Um, but if going back to your question about Netanyahu, I think he is the sharpest. He is. Um, some call him a, ch a chess player, that he's always thinking several steps ahead. Um, you knew when you're sitting in a meeting with him, um, I knew him for many years, as I said, I knew I didn't have to go into long explanations. Tell him what you saw, tell him what you think, he'll understand it at that point. And he already, his mind is thinking several steps ahead. So with Netanyahu, that's, it's actually, I enjoyed working with him on that because he didn't have to go into all these explanations of why you saw something in my arena, which was public relations, um, it's very easy. He said, Mr. Prime Minister, this and this is the things that we saw. I think we can do this. And 
and he just gives you the okay because he's already understood where, where you want to go with it. Got it, got it. So let's talk about one of the important roles that you've had, and it's a corollary to what we're dealing with in the United States. Just this morning, uh, President Trump was talking about fake news that had been released on uh, supposedly his desire to greatly increase the nuclear capability of the United States. It's a big thing with our president in the U.S. to deal with the fake news sources and what to do about it. Now, you've had that experience as well, right? Well, I basically say that uh, the, the people call this the cradle of the civilization. This is the cradle also of fake news. We have Israel is. The Middle East, but particularly Israel, because uh, in the second half of the 80s, and especially in the 90s, uh, Israel became the focus and the center of international media. There were more journalists here per capita than any place else in the world, and sometimes more journalists than any place else when you had events going on here. It was even overcovered. Because when you have, I would say after the 73 war, but especially, we're talking 40 years now, Sadat coming to Israel, and it sort of changed the Middle East at that point. Israel became a focus point for the foreign press. It was very central before that, but it really became the place. They'd been centered in Beirut before that, but after, if you remember, journalists were abducted by Hezbollah and, the, and by Muslims in the 80s in uh, Beirut, suddenly journalists understood that uh, it's not a comfortable place to be. And they moved to Israel. Israel's very convenient. It uh, has access to every place. It's a Western society, um, very sophisticated, very modern. Uh, even back 30 years ago, we were more modern than the other areas. So Germans felt this is a good place to hang out at. Now, if they could be here and then hop to Syria or to Cairo or to other places, very quickly the story became here in Israel. They could sit in Tel Aviv at a bar and get in a cab and an hour, an hour and a half later be in the territories. Well, by the 90s, they could sit in the bar and they'd be part of the story because bars and restaurants were targeted at that time by terrorists. So it's very convenient. But then if you have this many journalists here for so long, and they want to all want to do, have a certain angle, a special angle, how many times can you cover the story here and get something that's unique and special? Now, we have a lot of stories. If you've been here, if you've been to Israel, you know that it's constantly uh, reinventing itself. But a journalist who's been here for a few years, and there's a lot of competition, so they would stretch the truth at times. Now, stretching the truth is one thing, but when it became, and, and this is the year 2000, I think at 93, when the peace process began, with the Oslo process, the story sort of shifted from being the story about Israel, the return of the Jewish people to the uh, Holy Land, to its ancient homeland, it sort of shifted to the Palestinians because they were nation building supposedly at that time. And the journalists spent more time with the, with the Palestinians and in the, the Palestinian areas. Um, unfortunately, the, it was like they were embedded. And one of the concepts, this was a concept that the American uh, military developed during the first Gulf War. They understood that when you have journalists embedded with soldiers, the soldiers aren't just this faceless, nameless uh, um, troops moving in. They're now Billy Bob and Billy Jane and people that they know and they know their families and they become close to them. This also happened with the Palestinians. Now, up until 2000, it was okay. But the moment that the Palestinians went to war against Israel, their so-called, or as the media, uh, the watered-down term, called it an intifada, um, at that point, they became tools and were being used by the Arabs and by the, the so-called Palestinians. Danny, thank you so much. Thank this you. has been a real distinct pleasure. We really appreciate it. Fascinating insight from Danny Seaman. Thanks for joining us on Because You Asked. 
You can always write to me at barry at americantruthproject.org. I promise to get back to you. And you can go to our website, americantruthproject.org, where you can sign up to be on our mailing list. It's always free, and you'll never miss an exciting episode. I'm Barry Newsbaum. Thanks for listening to the American Truth Project, a 501c3 nonprofit. Please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on our social media channels to stay plugged in to the truth. Go to americantruthproject.org and subscribe to our newsletter to stay informed on the latest news.